0: on here in this passage, is the religious elite of the day had done a bit of mental gymnastics and managed to actually manipulate God's law to make it something it wasn't. They, they took God's law and used it to justify hatred, or justify retaliation, and they've got it completely wrong. Um, I'm excited to unpack it with you. And there's a lot of application here. Uh, so join with me as I pray. Father in heaven, I pray that uh, the sermon will be glorifying to you and would bear much fruit um, in everyone here today. In your son's name I pray. Amen. So the context to it, right, is it's the Sermon on the Mount is almost like a repeat of the giving of the law in the Old Testament where God comes down to the mountain from heaven, and presents one man, Moses, with the Ten Commandments. And the law reveals part of God's nature. Um, But what we have here is Jesus, God in flesh, on the mount, and the people coming up to God. And in doing so, Jesus is revealing the true nature of God. And one of his key attributes is love. And his law, or his standard, is perfection, complete and total perfection. And he's, doing, he's giving the sermon at a, at a time of great cultural conflict. There's a lot of animosity between ethnicities. They have an oppressive government that makes arbitrary laws and um, taxes significantly. Um, there's all kinds of... Disturbed sexual ethics that go on as well At this point in history And and God's people are waiting for The Messiah Not too different to today, right? Besides, besides um, Increased technology And uh, scientific Discoveries, we're not actually very different To the listeners of the day as well And so Jesus has two audiences Here, there's, there's, a, there's naturally Going to be a hostile audience And that's why Uh, he addresses, you've heard that it was said, you've heard that it was said, you've heard that it was said, but then he addresses those who are keenly listening. But I say to you. And so he says, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And this was one of those laws that was used to justify retaliation in this context. But it was actually given this law in in the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy, um, in Leviticus, that this was to marry up the punishment with the crime. You're to, you're to have even punishment to the crime, right? It's not about retaliation. And so Jesus gives four examples of how it is that you are to respond to wrongdoing. And the first of which has to do with being struck on the right cheek. Now, this is often used to justify pacifism or just not responding to violence. And that is a misunderstanding of what's going on here. Because if if I got a volunteer up here and struck them on the right cheek, any volunteers? I would either come through with, like, a flimsy, open-handed left hand, because I'm not left-handed, or you'd go with a backhand, like a big Roger Federer to the right cheek, this is, it's a backhanded insult that Jesus is referring to. And this is an honour-shame culture. It is deeply grievous to be dishonoured in such a way. And so he's saying, turn the other cheek. Do not retaliate. Because your honour comes from heaven. Not here in, in, in this fractured world. Not, not from men. <laughs> And so you have the freedom to let it wash over you, that that dishonouring and that offence. What about when the law is used to take your tunic? It's it's almost, it it is comical here. You have the the creator and sustainer of the entire world, I, I think, making a joke with his listeners. He's saying to them, Because keep in mind, you don't don't have heaps of layers here. You have a tunic and a cloak that you're wearing and maybe some sandals. He's saying, "Give, give them what's left on you. Your possession's here. You can cling to them lightly. Don't retaliate. You're of a different world. And then what about arbitrary laws that the Roman government came up with? Governments love making arbitrary laws. And this one was that a Roman official can compel you to carry a heavy burden, a heavy, heavy load for one mile. they come across and they, they need a task done, one mile, carry it. Don't retaliate. In fact, because your rights and your citizenship is in heaven, you are free. Free to go two miles. Now, I know uh, a lot of us would struggle to go two or even three. Um, But the, the point here is that you're different, right? Now, if you suppose you're trying to share the gospel in the first mile, you are no different to any other citizen. You're no different to the pagans. But it's in that second mile that you become different. It's in that second mile where they are all ears. And then what about your possessions? You can give and you can lend freely because you have all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge stored up for you in heaven. You have an eternal inheritance inheritance there. You're okay to lend and be generous. It's, It's okay. And so you are to be different when you belong to a different world. Make sense? So, let me summarise what's going on in this section. The religious leaders have perverted what God had given to Moses on Mount Sinai in the giving of the law. And now something greater has arrived than the law, and it is God in the flesh. And where the letter of the law has been used to manipulate and justify hatred towards enemies, Christ shows you how you are to really treat your enemies. And it is with love. And you see, God is the maker of all things and the definer of all things, determines what love is. Not religious elite, Not gurus, not influencers, not noisy minorities, not scientists, but God himself. And he doesn't do so arbitrarily. Because you see, love is at the very centre of God's nature. It's one of his attributes. In 1 John, is declared God is love. So this is at the root of what God turns to next. He says, You've heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. The first half of that, love your neighbor, is taken from God's law. The second half of that is through a little bit of mental gymnastics that's gone on. Because you see, the religious elite had gone, What's the opposite of love? Hate. And who's the fur- furthest away from me than my neighbor? My enemy. So let's you know take the opposites here love my enemy love my neighbor and hate my enemy it's a, it's it's just the opposite so it must make sense it's I don't know, a little bit of uh, mental contortion there but um, what was Jesus say no <laughs> love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you So this misunderstanding of love is nothing new at all. Um, the world loves the word love. It's thrown around a lot. And yet, outside of God, you cannot define love. Without God, you cannot define love. So here's, here's a quick six examples of how love is misunderstood. And once, once you see them, you, you see it everywhere. It's, it's really interesting. Love being talked as something that's out of your control. You have no say over it. It's random. It's part of your part of your nature. You can't change that. And quite often, you just fall into it as if it's like a trap. Just or you just got struck by it. You fall into love. That's the first lie. It's something random, out of your control. Secondly, in Judaism, Islam, and Mormonism. God's love is something that must be earned. You must be righteous and earn and merit God's love and affection. But friends, if you must earn God's love, it's a payment. It's nothing but a payment. Now, imagine if you'd treated your kids like that. They must earn your love. They wouldn't survive the first 24 hours of their life, and you wouldn't get you wouldn't have to love them for about the first two years. Thank God that God doesn't treat us like that. Um, okay, the third misunderstanding. they'll never say it, but love is selfish. In the self-help movement, some of them self-help cults. Um, You love because it's fulfilling yourself. You love because it it will make you happy. That's why you should love. Loving is good for you. So it becomes about doing something for yourself. Is that loving? (laughs) If If it's just to make yourself feel happy in the New Age movement? All things are one. All things are equal. There's a bit of you in everything and everything in you. And so you ought to love because by loving something, you're loving yourself and fulfilling yourself, which again is self-centred, deeply self-centred, and actually the opposite of love in many ways. What about an atheism? What is love according to atheism? Love is useful for the propagation of your genetics and is often accompanied... By an illusory but pleasant experience of neurochemicals colliding randomly with neurons within this wall called your skull, which is all meaningless. <laughs> it's uh, atheism is about as romantic as a stale piece of bread. <laughs> it's um, completely mis- misunderstood. So, but yet, it's love is so deeply woven into our relationships and the fabric of creation that, um, you know, we have to come up with love being something more than that. Love's more than meaningless. Another misunderstanding is equating love with sexual attraction. And there are two problems with that. If you equate love with sexual attraction or even just an emotion... Who are you to say that it is wrong for an adult male to be attracted to a small child? Who this is a slippery slope to bestiality and a slippery slope to justifying pedophilia. And it's not—it's logical if you equate love with that. And you can see the pushback to movies like The Sound of Freedom if you have, if you're not not aware about it, check it out. But the other, and this is less um, severe, but also a big deal, if love is merely a feeling, most most of you have partners here. Do you have a positive, giddy, loving feeling towards your partner right now? I hope not. It's not the right place. But if you If you're not experiencing this feeling, you're not loving them. And what about on your way to church (laughs) this morning? I know probably 50% of you were (laughs) definitely not loving towards your partner. (laughs) And if hatred is merely just a feeling as well, what does that mean about your kids when you are not, (laughs) when you don't have these positive, loving, compassionate feelings towards them? That would mean that you don't love them in that moment. And so to, to think love is like just merely an emotion would be like just getting tossed by the sea all the time. But thank God love is not just an emotion. Lastly, one of the biggest misunderstandings of love, in Buddhism, love is a state of mind, is a state of being, similar. and It is achieved through detachment and separation from others to avoid suffering. So here it again is equated with a feeling and it's achieved through non-relationship. Friends, I think a good definition to run with is love is the self-giving other-oriented commitment to pursue the well-being of others even at great cost to yourself all to the glory of God. It's more than a feeling often accompanied by emotions, both good and painful. Loving can be painful. Rather than detaching and avoiding others, love is deeply relational. You cannot have love without relationship. Love is a choice. It is an act of the will. It is a verb. And at the heart of love is a Commitment to pursuing the well-being of another. And so often we can confuse love as Christians with tolerance. Where we can tolerate sin and evil in someone's life that we care about deeply. And as Dave highlighted with the beatitude of Blessed are the Peacemakers, there is a big difference between peacemaking and peacekeeping, peacekeeping tolerates, peacemaking loves. To make is at the best interest of those we love. And another, another trap that we have, and this is something that Jesus highlights, is that it's easiest... It's easiest to love those that are easy to love. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that. Friends, this goes for within the church, it's easy to love some people within the church than other people, but also goes for people outside of the church as well. And hence Jesus really highlights that um, even if you greet your own people, what are you doing more than others? But then there's another trap. And it's it's the trap that the world just like falls into continually, which is loving to be seen, loving the minorities popular, to love the minorities, and to really be seen to be doing that, which makes you no better than the Pharisee. To be seen. And so that raises the question, whose glory are you loving for? Why is it that you love? Are you loving out of fear? Are you loving to fulfill yourself or for your own glory? Friends, anything that's not done for God and done out of the source of love is missing the mark. So, that brings us to being able to understand love your enemy. Why is it that we should love our enemy? Well, firstly, from a practical perspective, this is one that um, Sinclair Ferguson highlighted that I thought was fantastic. First reason to love your enemy is because it diffuses evil. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, German theologian and minister, was one of the few Christian men to stand against the Nazi regime. And he says, in the face of evil, it is the will of the evildoer that is broken, but only by the superior power of the good which refuses to be overcome by evil. Friends, love diffuses, it melts these walls of hostility. And so what happens if you return evil with evil? Or you escalate the problem. It inflames when you return evil with evil. And so that's why we can say with the Apostle Paul, return evil with love. Next, to love your enemy is to be a child of God. As I highlighted, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Those who make peace need that need love—the self-giving, other-oriented commitment to pursue the well-being of others, even at great cost to oneself—to the glory of God—is a requirement to make peace. But even more so, why should we love our enemies? because God loved us while we were an enemy of his. Like the good parent that loves the infant before the infant is capable of returning with love, so too is it that God loves us before we have any, any reason to be loved besides his good pleasure and his nature. Romans 5 verse 8, God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so we cannot boast of our own merits. We did not earn God's love. Because while we were hostile towards God, he drew us to him by the work of the Holy Spirit to repent and move to him. without God's love first, we would be without hope. Most of all, with every single command, every single part of this passage in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus actually keeps himself. So let's run through. Let's run through each of them. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. How is it that Christ fulfills that? He takes the punishment... For the crime, he takes what we deserve, which is the full wrath of God. He takes that, and in return we receive what he has merited. He takes what we deserve. Jesus carried the cross for as far as he could, until he could carry that heavy burden no longer. And Simon was pulled from the crowd and uh, commanded to carry that heavy load for Christ. Was his honour insulted? Yes. Did he retaliate? He wasn't just struck on the right cheek. He was crushed. He was whipped. He was flogged. The muscles on his back were exposed and gashed. He hung to a cross. He went there as silent as a lamb to be slaughtered. He mentions on the path to... One of the passerby is, are you not aware that I could call down legions of angels? He could have retaliated. This, is well, this was well within his control. But he belonged to a different world and a different kingdom. What about the taking of the tunic and the cloak? Although it was funny, during the Sermon on the Mount, it was ghastly when he had his clothing removed and hung there with his hands pierced, feet pierced, strapped to that, to the cross. And contrary to what is often depicted in the Renaissance art, where there's a little piece of cloth preserving the last few inches of his dignity, it, that piece of cloth was not there. He had his full... He, like, that's the depth of... Our sin that needs atoning for. That is, that is the extent of his dishonouring. Did he give and lend generously? He gave his life for us. Did he love his neighbour? Did he love his enemy and pray for those who persecuted him? Friends, we were enemies towards him, hostile towards God when he died. He prayed for those as they He prayed for his enemies as they persecuted and murdered him. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. His love was nothing short of perfect. And so what's the command at the bottom of our our passage? Be perfect. We are called to be perfect. Perfect. And yet we fall so far short of that perfect, perfection. And that's why it is that we need Christ. He made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Praise be to God for that. And so, as he hung on the cross and a few short breaths later, he faced the punishment that we deserve. And three days later, he rose again, to prove and to validate that he has conquered death, he showed that those who repent and trust in him will not face eternal death, but will have eternal life in heaven. And so it is, friends. We have repented when we are in Christ, that we have both died already to this world, and our citizenship is in heaven, not here, and so how it is that we conduct ourselves, how it is that we respond to wrongdoing, how it is that we love is to be different and to be dictated, not, not restrained by this world and this world's standards of love, but actually to reflect God's love. And so that's why we can say, with the Apostle John, God is love. Bow with me and pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your love shown to us in Christ. Thank you for your mercy shown to us daily. Help us to be a reflection of your love. Help us when it's hard to love. Pray this in your son's name. Amen.